with people, he showed them that they were more than a stereotype to him. And what I want to do today is look at two from the Gospel of Luke that stand out in this regard. So turn with me, if you will, to the fifth chapter of Luke. Luke chapter, I'm sorry, no, the seventh chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 7. And there we'll encounter a story where Jesus is invited into the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And in this story, a woman who anoints his feet is going to be stereotyped. The fact that this dinner takes place in this home and we're told that they, the, the guests are reclining at table in verse 36 and in verse 37, it indicates that this was a formal dinner. This wasn't, wasn't uh, your, your normal setting for dinner. This is a formal event. Typically, when a guest teacher was in town and he spoke at the local synagogue, someone of some standing would invite that individual over for a meal at their house and they would have this formal meal in honor of the guest speaker. That could be what's happening here because Jesus is known as a rabbi or teacher in this phase of his ministry. And it may just be that Simon, this Pharisee, who heard him, invited him over to honor him as a guest in his home for a meal. The other interesting thing that you need to know about this dinner and about dinners like this is that they were not private affairs. People in town would be invited to come and observe the dinner. That's because the houses back then were constructed uniquely. The houses back then would have an interior courtyard around which all the rooms would be constructed. And so guests could come and stand in the courtyard and peer in and listen to the conversation and the events that are happening around that dinner table. That's the same residential structure that you will find Peter in during Jesus' interrogation by the high priest. He's in the courtyard of the high priest's house observing the events that are happening inside as Jesus is being interrogated. It's just a customary physical structure that allowed citizens of town to come in and observe the events that are going on. But the key detail of this story is that Simon is a Pharisee. Because the Pharisees are notoriously antagonistic toward Jesus for one reason. They at times tried to test Jesus, even entrap Jesus. But Simon's motivation to have Jesus come to his house for a dinner seems to be pure. It appears that like Nicodemus in John's gospel, John chapter 3, that like Nicodemus, Simon wants to investigate Jesus for himself. He wants to determine for himself if Jesus is who Jesus claims to be. If Jesus is a prophet or something more. It seems that that's Simon's objective because when you look at verse 39, which we'll look at in a minute, Simon's thinking to himself, if this guy were a prophet, he would know something about what's going on. He's contemplating Jesus' status, Jesus' identity, while he's got him at the dinner. So it seems his motive is pure. But the other thing that is interesting about the fact that he's a Pharisee is that Pharisees were separatists. They were a, as one uh, dictionary describes them, 
They were a Jewish sect or party whose members voluntarily took upon themselves a strict regime of, oh no, a strict regiment of laws pertaining to purity. They were known for separating themselves from anyone or anything that would be considered unclean, and they did this in an attempt to fulfill the, the uh, command of Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44, as well as Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, which says that they should be a holy nation, that the Israelites, the Jews, should be a holy nation and the kingdom of priests. The Pharisees took that seriously. They wanted to be that holy nation. And in their understanding of Mosaic law, that meant they had to do everything they could to separate themselves from anything unclean. That's important for the story because of what happens next. As they are dining, Luke chapter 7 verse 37 tells us that a woman of the city who was a sinner entered the room. Now the text never tells us what this woman's sin is, yet we have a tendency to associate a particular type of sin with her. You see, from context, we see that Jesus described her sins as many down there in verse 47. And in verse 39, the host, Simon, the Pharisee, he makes it known that he's familiar with who and what sort of woman she was. And those details favor the assumption that she was a prostitute or an adulteress. As one commentator pointed out, it seems more likely that a woman would develop a citywide reputation as a sinner if she were guilty of a sexual sin. And this sinful woman approached Jesus' feet. Now, she didn't crawl underneath the table to get to Jesus' feet. This isn't some awkward situation here. Jesus' feet would naturally be the most accessible part of his body to those not dining around the table that day. That's because all the diners at a formal banquet like this would be laying on the ground, leaning on their left elbow with their heads toward a short table where they could reach with their right arm and grab the food. Their feet would then be extended outward on a couch, away from the table. You and I would never eat like this. That would be uncomfortable. But it was, <coughs> excuse me, customary and natural for them. And because they would be positioned on the ground like that with feet extended away from the table, the non-diners that are at this dinner would enter the room and the feet of the people would be easily accessible while their heads would be inaccessible next to the table. And so this woman stands over Jesus' feet, overcome with emotion, and begins to cry. And her tears are falling on Jesus' feet. Now that wasn't expected or anticipated. She didn't have anything to dry his feet, to wipe off her tears with. So she lets down her hair and uses it as a towel. And that was a big no-no. Because in that culture, women weren't supposed to let down their hair. 
in that culture, if a woman let down her hair, it was seen as a sign of promiscuity. So this woman, who we don't know the sin of, but it seems like it is quite possibly associated with sexual sin, just did something in letting down her hair that fed that stereotype. And with her hair, she dries Jesus' feet, and then she breaks open an alabaster jar of perfume and anoints Jesus' feet. She may have wanted to anoint his head because that was the customary sign of hospitality, but that was inaccessible for her. And so maybe she settled on his feet because she couldn't get to his head. Or maybe she was intending to anoint his feet as an act of humility on her behalf. We don't know the motivation. But we do know that her actions spoke volumes to both Simon the Pharisee and to Jesus. They just didn't speak the same volume. I want you to think for a moment, what, what did Simon see when this woman entered the room and anointed Jesus' feet? All Simon saw was sin. He couldn't see beyond sin. He saw someone with an irredeemable reputation for assuredly sexual sin. He saw someone who let her hair down in public and thus validated his preconceptions about her promiscuous lifestyle. He saw someone who was known to be morally impure and therefore was contagious with uncleanness. She was, in his mind, someone to be avoided rather than accepted. And nothing would ever change that about her. That's why he thought to himself in verse 39, if this man, referring to Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. All Simon could see was sin. Because all Simon could see was a stereotype. But what did Jesus see? Jesus saw a soul. Jesus saw someone who was penitent. Jesus saw someone who had value. Jesus saw someone who could be saved. Jesus saw someone who had sought forgiveness. What's so very interesting about the text is that the way her actions are described, she's not there necessarily seeking forgiveness. She's there giving thanks for having received forgiveness. Her actions didn't earn her forgiveness. Her actions were re in response to what can only be assumed but a previous experience of forgiveness. My mind in studying this story toyed with the idea 
And this is complete conjecture, no biblical basis for it whatsoever. But what if this was the woman that had been caught in adultery and brought before Jesus for a stoning? What if the possibility existed that this is the woman that Jesus wrote in the ground and then said, neither do I condemn you, after challenging the Pharisees to cast the first stone? What if this woman is responding at this opportunity to let Jesus know that she appreciates the forgiveness he gave her when he said, go and sin no more? And now Jesus is going to look at this woman and say, Again, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. What if this was the same woman? There is no connection between the two in Scripture. That's pure conjecture and pure what-ifing on my part. But the text seems to imply this woman came in contact with forgiveness prior to arriving that day because when Jesus tells the the parable to Simon in this interaction— he talks about a person. He asked, he asked the question, who loved more? The one who was forgiven the most is the answer. And he points out that this woman has been forgiven of her many sins, as if that had already happened. See, Jesus saw in this woman someone who had been set free and had come to express gratitude for forgiveness. He saw someone who loved much because she had been forgiven much, as verse 47 says. And someone who ignored culturally appropriate protocols simply because her emotions got the best of her. The point is that Jesus saw more than a stereotype. He saw a soul worth saving. Now let me take you to the 19th chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 19. It's going to involve another meeting in a home, but not in the same context as we just read. In Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, we find out that Jesus is in the town of Jericho. But it doesn't appear that he had any intentions of stopping there, (coughs) because according to Luke chapter 19 and verse 1, He was passing through en route to Jerusalem. In fact, if you journey through the rest of Luke chapter 19, you find out that Luke has chronologically placed the events that we're about to talk about in the first 10 verses. He's chronologically placed those in the same chapter as the triumphal entry. Certainly several days and several other events took place prior to the triumphal entry, but Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. Jesus is marching towards his crucifixion when he goes through Jerusalem on this occasion. And here's what you need to know about Jericho. Jericho was one of the wealthiest cities and one of the most fertile parts of Judea at this time. It was a city with a pleasant climate that if it existed today, the Arbor Day Foundation would name it a tree city because it was especially known for its palm trees. In fact, it's referred to as the City of Palms in multiple passages in the Old Testament. One we referenced a few Sunday nights ago in the round table, Judges chapter, chapter 3, verse 13. It's where Ehud murdered Eglon 
in Judges chapter 3. And while ancient Old Testament Jericho was famous for its wall and its tightly packed houses like Rahab's that were built into the wall, the Jericho of Jesus' day was more open and known for having numerous parks and avenues in which trees grew. And palm trees weren't the only other tree there. There were also sycamore trees. And we know that because as Jesus made his way through the city like a celebrity with adoring fans trying to get near him, he approached a sycamore tree in which one individual had positioned himself for the sole purpose of catching a glimpse of Jesus. The guy in the tree is named Zacchaeus. And there are two things we know about Zacchaeus, aren't there? First, we know that he was a wee little man. At least that's the way the children's song goes when we're teaching it in Bible class. The, the Bible has it a little differently. The Bible simply says he was small in stature in verse 3. He's actually in that sycamore tree because due to his shortness and, and the, the size of the crowd around him, he wasn't going to be able to see Jesus from ground level, so he had to get up high so he could catch a glimpse of Jesus. The second thing we know about Zacchaeus is that he was a tax collector. More specifically, verse 2 tells us that he was a chief tax collector. This likely means that he was the head of the local taxation department, and therefore he was probably the one that was contracted by the Roman government to collect taxes, and he therefore hired other guys underneath him to go out and do the manual labor of collecting those taxes. But it also means that he was very rich. Jericho was a great place for taxation. It was a border town. A lot of customs were going to come through there. He was going to be able to tax a lot of people. He was going to make a great living for himself. And when Jesus saw Zacchaeus, he invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. Now, I want you to think for a moment. How would that go over today if somebody just showed up and invited themselves over to your house? We're not too fond of that. And guess what? That wasn't normal practice then either. You did not typically invite yourself over to somebody's house. Hospitality meant that they would invite you over to their house. But Jesus speaks to Zacchaeus and says, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus didn't say, I would like to stay at your house, or I need to stay at your house. He said, I must stay at your house, as if it's part of his divine mission. And like I said, that's unusual, because people did not normally invite themselves over to other people's houses. But it's also unusual... Because in that day and age, as one commentator said, pious Jews would not normally enter the house of a tax collector or eat his food because it was presumed that someone unreligious enough to collect taxes would not be careful about maintaining ceremonial purity. And herein lies the stereotype. The people of Jesus' day automatically assumed that anyone who was a tax collector was a sinner. This stereotype is based on the assumption that all tax collectors tended to be dishonest. They collected more than they were authorized to collect in order to make themselves rich. 
In fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 3 and verse 13, you'll see John the Baptist giving instructions to tax collectors who came to be baptized by him. And his instruction to them was simply, collect no more than you have to. You see, there was a stereotype in Scripture about tax collectors. And that stereotype is evident because so many times in the Gospels, you're going to see two terms paired together. Tax collectors and what? Sinners. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 10 and 11, we're told that Jesus reclined at table in the house of Matthew, and many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with him. This bothered the Pharisees, who asked his disciples in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 9, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19, Jesus repeated an accusation that had made, been made against him because he dined with such individuals. The accusation was that he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of, guess what? Tax collectors and sinners. And then in Luke chapter 15 and verse 1, prior to giving us the three lost parables, Luke tells us that the audience that was drawing near to Jesus to hear him was made up of tax collectors and sinners. Throughout the Gospels, you're going to see tax collectors and sinners paired together because that's the stereotype. Every tax collector is a sinner. And on this occasion, when Jesus invites himself into the home of Zacchaeus, guess what the crowd did? They grumbled. They complained. They were bothered by the fact that Jesus, who they had just thronged to, this teacher, this miracle worker, this prophet, this Messiah, possibly, is going to go eat in the home of a tax collector? And once again, we need to consider what did the crowds see when they saw Zacchaeus? Just like Simon and the woman who anointed Jesus' feet, all the crowd saw was sin. They said to themselves in Luke chapter 19 and verse 7, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, not was a sinner, not had a reputation for being a sinner, but is currently and still a sinner. And this bothered them not just because of the stereotype they had towards tax collectors, but because of the traditions they had associated with being around tax collectors. According to one author, rabbinic tradition said that tax collectors were unclean and that they passed their uncleanness on to whatever they touched. So in the eyes of the average Jewish person, a tax collector was considered as unclean as a leper. And by entering his home... Jesus was contaminating himself. See, the crowds saw Zacchaeus as someone who was past the point of saving. They saw someone who did not deserve Jesus' attention. They saw someone who was going to make everyone else unclean. 
because all they could see was a stereotype. And you've probably figured it out. But when Jesus looked at Zacchaeus, he saw something else. He saw a soul. He saw someone who was searching for more to this life than wealth. He saw in Zacchaeus someone who was so interested in what he was about that he was willing to take drastic measures just to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus saw in Zacchaeus a seeker who simply needed to be shown love in order to become a believer. Jesus saw a soul worth saving. So when Jesus showed Zacchaeus that he was more than a tax collector to him, Zacchaeus immediately responded penitently and thereby showed Jesus that he was more than a celebrity to Zacchaeus. And when Zacchaeus was prepared to change his life, Jesus was prepared to proclaim, Today salvation has come to this house. And as far as we know, Zacchaeus was the only resident of Jericho to hear those beautiful words that day. You see, Jesus' interaction, whether it be with the sinful woman of Luke chapter 7 or the tax collector of Luke chapter 19, it demonstrates that Jesus saw more than a stereotype. He refused to look at these individuals and operate based on the preconceptions that most people possessed. He chose to see beyond the external, beyond the assumptions, beyond the surface. And in so doing, he reminded us that he is truly God in the flesh. Do you remember when Samuel went to the home of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel? Brother Ken Lawler read it for us a moment ago in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6 and 7. There we're told that when Samuel met Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, he thought to himself, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to him, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel assumed that Eliab would be the one he would anoint, because like King Saul, he looked the part. He was the stereotype. But God saw past the appearance, past the conditions and circumstances that typically produce our stereotypes, and into the heart of the man. He chose David because David didn't look the part, but he was the man after God's own heart. You see, the announcement of David's selection as the next king of Israel or the announcement of forgiveness for the woman who washed Jesus' feet and the announcement of salvation to the household of Zacchaeus all showed us that in the eyes of God, every person is more than a stereotype. And that brings us to today. That brings us to an invitation. Today's invitation is threefold. First, there's an invitation for those who are in Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're already a believer, already a Christian, already a disciple. 
but you've been one who sees stereotypes. Maybe you've withheld your fellowship, your service, or your evangelistic efforts from certain people because of preconceptions that you've developed. Maybe you're failing to be like Christ in this regard, and it's time to repent. That invitation is extended to you today. But there's also an invitation for those who have been hurt by stereotypes. Maybe you've been mistreated, overlooked, or criticized because of a stereotype that is ignorant at best and discriminatory at worst. Maybe you're holding on to that baggage and you need to let it go. Maybe you need to come to Jesus and turn the burden of being stereotyped over to Him so that you can find rest for your soul. That invitation is extended to you today as well. But there's also an invitation for those who are outside of Christ. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, never put Him on in baptism, never had your sins washed away. Maybe you're here today and you've accepted a stereotype that others have placed on you. Maybe you believe that like the sinful woman and the tax collector, you're beyond saving. Maybe you think that you're irredeemable. Maybe you think that you're not worthy. Maybe you need to hear that like the sinful woman, your sins can be forgiven, and like the tax collector, salvation can come to your house. And it's time to take the necessary steps to receive those blessings. That's awesome the invitation today. Because you are more than a stereotype. You are more than your sin. You are more than what the world says you are. Because you are made in the image of God and you are the one, or at least a one, for whom Christ died. If you need to respond to the invitation today, and we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.